And in God's Word, we are turning now to the book of Luke. I know we've read from Revelation, we're turning now to Luke. And we will refer as well to Song of Solomon as we move through the message today, three big Bible knocks. Uh, Verse 10, in fact, verse 9, and verse 10 of Luke chapter 11. And I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh, receiveth, and he that seeketh, findeth, and to him that knocketh, it shall be opened. And with God's Word open before us, let's bow together, please, in a further word of prayer today. Our gracious Father, again we look to Thee as we come now to Thy Word, to the preaching part of the meeting, to the place where we want Thee to lift up the truth of God and exercise our hearts with it. Maybe not just sit comfortably in our church pew today and listen to a message, but Lord, we pray that by Thy Spirit, the double speak to our heart, the double engage us, that thy Lord today will have something to say that is particular and specific to our hearts. Lord, may we now be praying, speak to me today. In the remainder of this meeting, deal with my heart. May there be direct contact between God and me, because we want that kind of communion and that fellowship, that correction, and that encouragement that can and will come from the truth of Thy Word. Answer our prayer now, and do us good as we meet before Thee. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen. I'm confident that most of you are going to be familiar with the famous picture of Christ knocking at the door. And you'll probably know it was painted by the English artist William Holman Hunt. I ran a quick check over the internet to see how popular or widely available this kind of portrayal is, our Lord knocking at the door. And I discovered that you can purchase a machine embroidery design of Christ knocking at dorm in what is called photo stitch technique. Or if that doesn't tickle your fancy, then a Christ knocking at the door sun catcher measuring 11 and a half inches in diameter and includes a chain for hanging. Or again, if neither of these two would be quite to your taste, then you can buy a resin figure. Christ knocking. That's available, and it costs 20 American dollars. And there's an advertising blurb that goes along with that. The Christ knocking plaque is inspired by old world artisans in northern Italy. This hand-painted icon is an authentic replica of an ancient hand-carved wood piece. Now, by the way, let me make it abundantly clear, I am not advocating that you go out and buy any of these products. And personally, I give depictions of my Lord a very wide berth indeed. 
What did interest me, and far more than anything that I have mentioned, was a rare second-hand book that Amazon were selling, only the paperback edition for 95 pounds 50 pence. But then I discovered you can have the full edition of the same book, PDF version, on the internet, and of course, that will be available for free. It's an old Puritan treatise by John Flavon, Christ knocking at the door of sinners' hearts. There's a subtitle to the same volume, so just in case you need it under its longer subtitle, a solemn entreating to receive the Savior and His gospel in this day of mercy. And that is a book that is very much worth reading. You'll find if you make your way through it, you've got 11 sermons on Revelation 3 and verse 20. You have a letter at the beginning to daily beloved ministers of the gospel, those that may read and even use the contents of the book in their own ministry. And today what we're going to do, because we have left behind our former series, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we're moving into a one-off message today. Who can tell? Might be a one-off next Lord's Day as well. But today, we're going to consider several Bible knocks. Times when in Scripture, we hear this word knock. Sometimes it's us. We have to do that. Other times, it is the knock that comes from heaven. So first of all, our Lord invites us to knock on His door, and it's the knock of impudency, the knock of impudency. That's what Luke and the chapter 11, the verse 9 and 10 is all about. Our Savior is speaking, and He says, and I say unto you, ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Now, you might look at that and just make a surface judgment on the text and say, well, ask and seek and knock. Why have we got these three words? But because there is a progression here, that's why we have the three different words used. It's a pretty emphatic gradation, the progressively building picture. You're going step by step through the text here. That's what our Lord is intending. And all of these actions ask, seek, and knock, they are growing in intensity by the moment. The word ask is a word of intense desire. And if we get the literal translation of it, then we're coming to this term. It is to crave. And you know, sometimes when you're looking for something, you would like something, and then the liking builds, intensifies, and it gets to the stage whereby you're virtually craving for that thing. That's where we are with the word ask. The basic thought behind it is to supplicate. So God is saying, I want my people to be pleading with me. And as they do, to pack that pleading with intense yearning after the thing that they are desiring. But then we go up the next step and we have seek. And that's going further forward than ask, carries the basic thought of to strive. And so you've got the person, and they are 
seeking, so they're pleading for it, plus they are acting. It's launching your appeal to heaven and then following up that appeal with real energy. Sometimes prayer doesn't go beyond the asking stage, and it just peters out and hits the ground. We need to follow up as people talk about putting legs to our prayers, and that's what we're doing here. Asking, seeking, so we're supplicating, we are striving, and the Lord doesn't end at that point. He goes further forward, and He says, you have to knock. And the word knocking means to strike, of course. Having asked, Having acted, we're obliged to persevere in that asking and in that acting. Or if you want to really open up the sentence here, each of the three leading verbs within it, ask and seek and knock, they are in the present continuous tense. What does that mean? It simply means for us that we would be entirely justified in rendering the text like this, and I say unto you, continue to ask, and it shall be given you. Continue to seek and ye shall find, continue to knock, and it shall be opened unto you. So, is our Savior's message not very clear? Continue, persevere, endure in your praying to the Almighty. Keep up your knocking on the door of heaven. In fact, the invitation when we bring it all together here is, it's pretty much what the old Puritan preachers, and we have referred to one of them already today, what they used to talk about, bombarding heaven. That vigorous manner of praying. They used to talk about a holy impudency. Coming before the Lord with great boldness, with this petition that you have, and it's burning in your soul and you're refusing to be turned away until you are sure this request has been registered with heaven and has been heard by God. Now, let's be honest. At times, our prayers are so stifled. Our seeking is so limited. Our knocking is so cautious. It's feeble. It's embarrassingly pathetic that anybody passing by, listening in, hearing us praying in the way that we are, would be forgiven for thinking that we are unsure whether we've turned up at the right address, speaking to the right person. Or maybe when we've got there, we're nervously looking over our shoulder and scarring the whole territory around us because we're kind of expecting a beast of a dog, like something like a Rottweiler, to run round the corner and just jump on us and devour us. Ask, seek, knock. Don't be afraid to bombard heaven Martin Luther certainly wasn't, so earnest he was in prayer that those who heard him, they used to say, he will not be denied. John Knox too. His prayers shook up Mary, Queen of Scots, and if ever there was a woman needed shaking up, it was her. She said, I 
fear John Knox's prayers more than an army of 10,000 men. And with good reason, because he looked around and he saw what was happening and Scotland stood in danger of becoming entirely popish. And he prayed most mightily for its preservation, for the preaching of the gospel in these famous words, Give me Scotland or I die. Not once did John Knox utter those words, and not twice or three times, but until his earnest petition was answered. The old Bishop Jeremy Taylor once said, easiness of desire is a great enemy to the success of a good man's prayers. Our prayers upbraid, chastise our spirits when we beg for those things for which we ought to die. So John Knox was right down that line. And knowing that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and knowing that the violent can take it by force, he petitioned the throne of God's grace in the earnest way that he did. Now somebody might say to me, well, you know what? There's been an episode in my life where I prayed once and the answer was given. And God can and does give most liberally. Sometimes when only one prayer has been offered for a particular item, it happens, it's maybe more the exception rather than the rule, because it is a fact that frequent and forceful and fervent pleading, usually over an extended period of time, that is what opens the door for abundant blessing. And notice here from the words of Verse 10 in Luke chapter 11, there is an increase in the reward that corresponds to the increase in the request. Because you'll see here, for all who ask, they shall receive. That is, a donation is made to them by the Lord. But then moving to the next, those who seek. They shall find, so we've got a donation plus. A discovery is made. What happens in prayer? You find out more about God. You discover more about the riches of His grace. You find more in Him than you ever thought was possible, that you ever knew before. Discovery, as well as a donation. For those who go on to knock, it shall be opened is the reward of the prize there. What will be opened? The door of heaven's blessing will be opened. And these people who are persevering in earnest, urgent prayer, who are knocking the door, besieging the throne, they'll receive a donation, they'll make a discovery, and they will also experience a deluge of blessing. The poet said, if we would have our souls refreshed with rain that falls from heaven, we must pray through like all the rest, and showers will be given. That's the key to blessing. As the volume of the supplication builds, so the volume of the supply that comes as a direct answer to those supplications builds. As our prayers are more concentrated in their ascent, so the blessings are more concentrated in their descent. And so I can't emphasize it too strongly. Persevere in prayer. That's the plea. 
the plea to our hearts. Wait upon God continually. As Paul recommends in Ephesians 6 and verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching their own tomb with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We look back to the days of the early church and we think, wouldn't it be wonderful if in our day and generation God just broke through, did what he did back then all over again? That would be tremendous where the Holy Spirit descended. Well, he didn't descend until Acts 1 and 14, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And then the rest, as they say, is history. God came down in the might of the Holy Spirit. He turned Jerusalem and the then known world upside down for his glory in response to the asking, seeking, and knocking of his people back then. George Stevenson, great engineer who did much to revolutionize the entire face of society, set off on his exploratory efforts, taking a motto with him. The motto was a one word, simply persevere. First experiment doesn't work. The engine you're making doesn't quite fit the pattern, meet the expectations. Go back to the drawing board, come again, make another one, persevere. That's what kept him going and started those steam engines going, we need to learn the value, in fact, the necessity of doing this in the place of prayer over every item that we are making request for at heaven's door. Blessings are on offer, no doubt about that. Invaluable blessings, incalculable blessings, infinite blessings, and our Savior is saying, here's the way. He's laying out the path. Ask, seek, Knock and keep on asking, seeking, and knocking until you receive them. You'll all be familiar, I'm sure, with the name of Matthew Henry, one of the most basic and best commentaries in the Bible. Matthew Henry had a father, Philip Henry. He too was a minister. And after praying for two of his children who were both dangerously ill, Philip Henry said, If the Lord will be pleased to grant me this my request concerning my children, I will not say, as the beggars at our door used to do, I never ask anything of him again, but on the contrary, he shall hear oftener from me than ever, and I will love God the better as long as I live. So we don't come to the door of heaven, battered and bombarded with our prayers, and then turn around and say, when God answers even a little, well, that's fine. I'll come back in a month's time. I'll repeat this in a year's time. I'll do it down the line sometime. Be like Philip Henry. He will hear oftener from me than ever. And may the door of heaven know our hand print upon it. Because we are knocking it so persistently. And there's a word of warning that comes here, a cautionary thought. When we fail to take up the opportunities for the blessings He gives us, He comes knocking on our door. He comes knocking 
on our door. So we have the knock of impudency. We have also the knock of intimacy. The knock of intimacy. And here we're moving from Luke, and we're going right to the final book in the Bible, Revelation, the passage we read from Revelation 3 and verse 20 is where we are arriving at here. And there our Lord is presented as calling, Behold, I stand at the door. So he's the one who's standing and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. Let me clear up an issue right at the very beginning here. I'm not saying it can't be applied any other way because obviously John Flavel would disagree for one, and many others would as well. It can be applied in various ways, but in the primary place, in the first instance, the top meaning of Revelation 3 and 20, these words are not spoken to concerning unregenerate sinners. They're rather addressed to the church. These are letters to the churches. So in the first instance, and we have it here, they're directed to a particular church, the church of the Laodiceans, persons there who professed the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, why is the Savior pictured here knocking at their door? Why is he there? Because our Lord is concerned about them. They were in a lukewarm state, he said. They weren't cold. They weren't hot. They were in between. Christ is using, therefore, every proper and gracious method to bring them out of that lukewarm condition and draw them into the center of great blessing again. So his standing at the door in this instance They either mean that he's coming with the intention of correcting, James 5, verse 8 and verse 9 kind of arium, or else he's coming with the intention of caring. Well, I believe he's coming from both angles here, and in condescension, in love, and exercising patience, as he's been doing with this particular church. He's coming to correct and also to care. And as I examine the context of what he's saying here, the verses leading into verse 20 in Revelation 3, it seems to me that his knocking is not just by the ministry of the Word, but through some afflictive dispensation of his providence, maybe even persecution, he was sending here to wake them up, to stir up their hearts, to get them inflamed again, Our Lord will not allow her to continue in her sleepy, lukewarm, indifferent, secure frame of spirit. And that's what we're reading in verse 15 through to the verse 18. And so he takes the rod of affliction in his hand, stands at the door, gives some severe knocks and wake-up calls and raps here to bring her to herself. And out of this indolent supine, self-confident condition that she found herself in. Is that not hinted at in Revelation 3 and verse 19 when he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten? Be zealous therefore and repent. That's my mission coming to this door. And again in verse 18, if we back up a further verse, when our Lord counsels the church here, you need to be dealing in a certain currency. It's a currency of gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich. 
And so the promise our Lord is making to those who will hear His voice is that when the church, in the lively exercise of faith and love, and after He has put His hand through the hole in the door and is opening that door, that He will come into them, He'll have fellowship with them, and they will have great communion with Him. So we're in the realm of communion and fellowship here. In other words, Christ knocks to step in, to commune with us, to take full control of our lives, to bless us magnificently and immeasurably. Sad and alone on one occasion, a poor old beggar stood on London Bridge, and he scraped away in a most horrific fashion on his miserable old violin in the hope that the passers-by would throw in some few pennies. Nobody seemed to listen, far less stop, and the beggar's heart was sinking down into his cold, toeless boots. A stranger came along on the bridge, and suddenly he stopped beside that fiddler, and he listened, while weary, wistful eyes searched his face and was saying to him, Charity, sir, show a little charity. The stranger didn't reach down into his pocket and pull out a requested penny. Instead, he reached forward for the violin. And the stiff, numb fingers of the beggar, as you can imagine, were only too happy to let go of that violin. And the new hands began to play a low, plaintive melody. And the first passerby at that point was arrested. It jerked a tear from his heart onto his face, compelled him to throw a penny into the old beggar's tattered hat. And he stayed to listen. Another stopped. Another penny came in. The man, he stopped for a while as well. Then another, another, another. It kept going within a few minutes. A dense crowd of hundreds of people had gathered on the bridge. And that red heap of coppers in the old man's hut, they were joined by the white gleam of sixpences and shillings. And from that decrepit old violin, some angelic-sounding melodies were coaxed. It's Paganini, it's Paganini, exclaimed some members of the crowd as they recognized the technical brilliance of that almost legendary Italian violinist. You see, a master hand had got to work on the old violin. And as that melodious music waltzed through the breeze on London Bridge, enchanting the ears of those who heard it, the old beggar collected a most wonderful hatful of coins. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ wants to do for His people. To come in, in the fullness of His grace, to shower His rich blessings upon us in awesome abundance, to direct us in His steps, to sound out the melodies of patience and resilience and purity and love and power and holy influence from our lives. He is ready to do it. More, he is anxious to do it. As he said to Abraham back in Genesis 22 and verse 17, in blessing, I will bless thee to the psalmist. In Psalm 132 and verse 15, I will have 
abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her. And then when Jerusalem's walls were being rebuilt and the temple again for his worship was being reconstructed, in Haggai 2 and 19 he says, From this day I will bless you. Time without number. Our Lord in Scripture talks about wanting to bless his people. He's standing at the door, your door, my door, and he is knocking. But naturally, this kind of a promise, a blessing, rests upon a condition. It has to. And when I go back to, for example, Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 15, verse 4 to 6, I find the Lord is sketching out the condition that I am obliged to fulfill before His blessing is sent to me. For the Lord shall greatly bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance to possess it, only if, here's the precondition then, only if thy carefully hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God to observe to do all these commandments which I command thee this day. For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee. What's the condition for blessing? It's obedience. A careful hearkening to the voice of God. So that in the midst of the hurly-burly of life, in all of the busyness of everybody calling us, looking for our attention, looking for us to go and help them, we are not missing the voice of God addressing our heart. This is the way. Walk ye in it. And that careful hearkening to the voice of our Savior and observing of His commands, that's the precondition for the blessings of extended fellowship and wonderful communion. How often is it the case? You know, we'd love the blessings. Of course we would. But because we love our sin and worldly pleasure even more, we don't like the condition that's attached to receive the blessing, and so we go without. We dispense with the directions, therefore the donations coming from the hand of the Lord. It's a terrible thing. And that's where the church of the Laodiceans went so wrong in Revelation chapter 3. Our Lord comes, He stands at the door, He offers them spiritual bounties of riches and clothing and eye salve, but they preferred their sin. They were content, therefore, to miss out on God's best. They chose to remain in their own wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked condition. So the pursuit of earthly pleasure, it kept on going. That's what had got them where they were. They didn't want to give it up. They were prepared to pay a massive price for worldliness, but not the minimal price of obedience for the blessing of heaven. I think of an old children's course. Do you want a pilot? Signal them to Jesus. Do you want a pilot? Bid him come on board and he will safely guide across the ocean wide until at last you reach your heavenly harbor and all the way through on that journey. He's waiting, he's knocking to give that unerring guidance and also those unending supplies of grace. Do we hear him at the door? Will we open it? 
So that's two doors. The knock of impudency, of intimacy. And I'm closing with the knock of immediacy. For a day is coming when the time for knocking will be over. A day is coming when the time for knocking will be over, either me at his door or he at mine. As a picture of Christ, and I mentioned we'd be going off into the Song of Solomon. It's a chapter 5 and a verse 2 which says, My head is filled with dew. What's that about? The bridegroom is outside in the cold night air. The dew's on his head and his locks. Had it been last night in Northern Ireland, it would have been frozen dew. But he desires to come in, to bless the bride with his presence. But she's asleep. And when she eventually wakes up and goes to the door, my beloved had withdrawn himself and was gone. I sought him, but I could not find him. I called him, but he gave me no answer. Christ waiting outside in the cold waiting before his church with overwhelming fullness of blessing. Tell me, are we going to sleep on in the pleasures of time, in the perversities of this wretched world, barring the door to Christ, and therefore closing out matchless blessing? Don't do it. For the sake of our soul's welfare, don't do it. For the sake of our family, don't do it. For the sake of our country, don't do it. But a word or two to the unsaved. I'm glad that the picture here in Revelation 3 and 20 of our Lord standing at the door does not tally in every respect with our Lord's actions when He comes to the unconverted and brings them to repentance and brings them to faith. You can't ever push a picture too far. Otherwise, you end absolutely stretching it and into the realm of bad and poor theology. Because this could imply that unregenerate sinners are not totally depraved or spiritually dead, requiring a resurrection of Lazarus proportions, but they have enough grace and they have enough strength in themselves to open their hearts to Christ. Quite simply, it's not in the power of unregenerate men or women who are dead in trespasses and in sins. It's not in their will. It's not in their inclination. It's not their desire. It's not in their affections left to themselves because their carnal mind is enmity against God and Christ they don't want to open their hearts and let the Savior in. And so people are foolish when they say, oh, there'll come a time in my life when I'll open my heart. If it was required of men and women in conversion to open their hearts, all of a sudden man's work is elevated to save you because salvation is off the Lord. A to his head, it's all of him. He is the one who does it by his irresistible power and he does not need the consent or cooperation of man in the realm of salvation. Take another implication here. And when we push the picture, that's where we end up. 
if those unconverted sinners refused to open the door to Christ, then our Lord would be standing there knocking in vain, become so frustrated in His purpose to save the souls of those men. That doesn't happen. And also, our Lord could just be wasting His time knocking on doors, hanging around there, banging away still, using up precious time and effort, when a wise man wouldn't stand at somebody's door to knock if he knew that door is never going to be opened. Men, through the preaching of the Word, can bombard the ear. And that's what I try to do. But it's only God who can reach and strike the heart and open the heart. And that only happens when the gospel comes, not in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost. And when God does that, let me tell you, you will know He's knocking. Because all of a sudden, your door will be swung wide open. And you'll be thinking, how did that happen? How did I arrive in this position? How did I get here? He doesn't wait until entrance is granted from inside. He doesn't negotiate his way in. He strikes home, bursts open the door of the heart by his powerful and efficacious grace. Check it out in Bible conversion. See how they happened. Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened. Acts sixteen fourteen. Soul of Tarsus, not looking for conversion, but it happened in Acts chapter 9. Philippian jailer didn't go to bed that night with any thought of God's grace, but it happened, Acts 16, 25 to 34. And also, are we not told in Revelation 3 and 7, for example, that our Lord Jesus Christ has the key of the house of David, Isaiah 22 and 22 as well, so that he shall open he shall open, none shall shut. He shall shut, and none shall open. And does not he allow himself by the power of his grace without offering violence to the wills of men because he makes his people willing. In the day of his power, Psalm 110 and the verse 3, Therefore we know one thing is for sure. His knocking is not randomly frustrated. It will never be in vain. And I pray that God will come close to you. And if you're not converted, draw you irresistibly to Himself or break down your door of stubborn resistance and bring you into the tenderness of His grace and mercy. But when we're talking about doors, and closed ones in particular, I cannot get away from Matthew chapter 25. First 13 verses of the chapter tell the story of ten virgins waiting for the coming of the bridegroom. Five were wise, five were told were foolish. The wise brought lamps with an additional supply of oil. The foolish only had lamps, no additional supplies. What happened? Well, while the bridegroom tarried, the oil ran out. And those who hadn't brought an additional quantity were running around those who had. Share it out. Give us of your oil. They didn't get it. They went away to purchase. But when they came back, we're told the door was shut. 
Afterward came the other virgin saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. They're knocking. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Our Lord goes down a similar line in Luke chapter 13, 24 to 28, and not by means of a parable here, but in plain, straightforward language. And he says, Strive to enter in at the street gate. For many, I say unto you, they'll seek to enter in. They shall not be able when once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and ye begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. He shall answer and say unto you, I know you not when she are. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, people you know in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out to think. Because some people do think this, that you've got close to the door of heaven. But to find the door closed and you sent down to hell, what misery that is, what despair that is, what unconsolable sorrow, what unutterable woe. Don't be a fake. Don't be a pretender. Don't be a hypocrite. Because you'll find this door, the most vital door of all, closed. And oh, what a weeping and wailing. As the lost were told of their fate. They cried for the rocks and the mountains. They prayed. Ah, yeah, then. But their prayer was too late. I appeal to you. Sinner burdened with thy sin. Come the way to Zion's gate, there till mercy let thee in. Knock and weep and watch and wait. Knock, he knows the sinner's cry. Weep, he loves the mourner's tears. Watch, for saving grace is nigh. Wait till heavenly light appears. Approach Christ, run to Christ in that real repentance and true faith that he alone gives you. Knock on his door, knock on his door. Appeal for his grace and be cheered and be satisfied abundantly with his eternal salvation.